Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate that. Um, yeah, not not easy, is it, having to do all of this um, online? So I just really appreciate you guys, Dean and Ruth. You did such a fantastic job. Um, and yeah, uh, it's it's going to be um, it's going to be fantastic getting back together physically next week up at the Forget Me Not Club in Codsall. Um, if you haven't been there before, it's um, next to Station Road in Codsall and funnily enough next to one of the best coffee shops in the city, uh, Medicine Coffee. So we, I think we just ought to kind of like be in prayer this week that they're open for takeout next Sunday because I just feel that I just feel there'd be another level of glory on our services if they were. So um, let's be praying for amazing takeout coffee as we meet together. And um, I'll be popping out, as Ruth said, um, just a poll into the WhatsApp group and the Facebook groups this week. So if you're coming along next Sunday, if you just let us know how many chairs you need, we'll set up ready for you. Um, and of course, we, we're having to comply with all the um, the government guidelines for um, church meetings, so we'll be doing that. Um, but I, I just can't wait. It, it's just nothing quite like it is there being together properly um, for worship. So if you want to get your Bibles out, um, I'm going to pray and we're going to dive back into our study. We as a church have been studying the book of First John and this week it's my privilege to be able to share from chapter 2 and we're going to be in verses 26 to 29. So I'm going to give you a moment to get your Bibles out. Uh, you can of course use the version uh, feature in the HCC dot online dot church tool uh, if you want it's fantastic um, but also a good old-fashioned printed bible there's absolutely nothing wrong with that either so let's pray and we shall begin father as we open up the scriptures today it's my prayer that lord you would encourage us you would build us up in the faith and father that these words that are written here in these few short verses would speak directly into our lives. It would be prophetic in the sense that it supernaturally speaks to things that we're actually dealing with right now. And Lord, we know that you can do that. So I pray, Lord God, um, that you would help me to stick to what your word says and not go off on a tangent. I pray, Lord God, that you'd use me in all of my frailties um, and that, Father, you would work something supernatural through this ministry today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right, so I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version. Pretty much all of the versions of the uh, Bible, English translations, are quite similar here. So it doesn't necessarily matter what translation you have Um they should all more or less say the same things. So I'm going to read from the NASB. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing which you received from him remains in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, remain in him. Now, little children, remain in him, 
so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not draw back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness also has been born of him. Amen. Amen. So this verse here, verse 26, these things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. John is explicitly mentioning this group of so-called Christians in the house church Ephesus who have left the fellowship. And these so-called Christians, he now explicitly says, are trying to lead the true Christian believers astray. They're trying to lead them astray. And at this point, he mentions them in particular. Everything that he has said in the first chapter, uh, first two, two chapters rather, has been a build-up to this. He's making it very clear at this moment. I'm talking to you about these people, about this group who have gone out from you and who are now trying to deceive you. They're trying to lead you astray. Now, a number of things pop up in our head straight away. The, no the number one thing for me is what are they trying to lead them astray from? Are they trying to lead them astray from John? Or are they trying to lead them astray from the teaching they received at first or some kind of a, a practice? Well, I think what John is saying is that you, you are being led astray from Christ. You're being led, away, led astray rather from the gospel that was given to you at first. And I think it's really important that we, we mention that, that what they heard at first from John, this, this gospel that they heard, um, it is this message that these Christians or so-called Christians who've departed are now trying to lead the true believers away from. And what John's trying to prove here is that these people who have gone out from you, they're not Christians. These people are not Christians, no matter what they say. They may say that they love Jesus, that they know him. They maybe say that they know the Father. Um, they maybe say they have a fantastic relationship with God, but they are not Christians. They are trying to lead you astray. They've departed from the truth, and now they're attempting to lead those who are still in the truth away. I think the first thing to mention here is that, isn't it peculiar that, a lie, a lie never exists in a vacuum. Somebody who is believing a lie or a false teacher who is preaching a false teaching will inevitably always try to deceive true believers. There's always a, an evangelistic quality, let's say, um, to false teaching in that false teachers are very ardent evangelists. They work hard to bring others into the same deception. They work hard to, to uh, delude others into the same teaching that they're in. And I've found that to be very true. I, I find often I'm impressed by the zeal for evangelism that I see in many of the Christian cults. When you see the effort and work, even though it's driven by a sense of fear and performance, you have to be impressed with the zeal 
of the Jehovah's Witness who sees the front door slammed in their face multiple times every week and still comes back to do the same work. You see, false teaching, deceptive teaching always reaches out to deceive others, okay? And so it's a very real threat. It's a very real threat, even today. Nothing has changed categorically in the world today in this area. Even though we now we have smartphones and we can do church online, um, there's still false teaching. And there are still many people out there attempting to lead astray true believers into delusional forms of Christianity. Nothing has changed. And so John's warning to the believers here in 1 John stands true for us here today in the 21st century. He's addressing them clearly. And here is another point that I, I, I do want to take time to address because at HCC, we have primarily walked through books of the Bible. And the, the great thing about doing that as a preacher is that I don't get to just stick on my preferred doctrines. I don't get to kind of camp on certain themes that I find the most fun. Um, I have to teach whatever's in front of me. And sometimes when you do that, you're led to unpack certain truths that are maybe quite uncomfortable. And in 1 John, we've had to do that. We've had to do that regularly because 1 John is a book that really does primarily address false teaching and the difference between true believers and false believers. Now, that topic, false teaching, is not something that you hear a lot about. Certainly in the charismatic church, obviously we're a spirit-filled church, we believe in the gifts for today, we believe in the gift of prophecy, but generally uh, false teaching isn't something that you would hear about from the front, is it? And um, I find that interesting. I, I, I think certainly there's something to be said here. Um, I, I think that by and large, the way that um, false teaching is viewed in the modern church, in the Western church, is as something that we're just supposed to leave alone. You know, if we ignore it, uh, it'll go away. We don't want to kind of point it out. We certainly don't want to be naming names because how could that be loving? You know, how could that be Christian of us to actually say such and such a person is teaching a false gospel? And I think that is the reason why many Christians are not on guard against false teaching today in the church, is that it's simply not spoken about. Now, I, <laughs> I think that if it were wrong for a Christian pastor to point out that there is false teaching, and if it were wrong for a Christian pastor to actually go ahead and name names of certain false teachers, then somebody ought to have told the apostles, right? Somebody ought to have told Peter, Paul and John, because on no fewer than six occasions, the apostle Paul calls out false teachers by name in the New Testament, by name. Now in a church these days, you're very unlikely to hear that. And to be honest, there aren't all too many occasions that really call for that, Let, let's be honest. 
um, my ministry as a pastor and the rest of the ministers in, in the city, um, our job is to preach the whole counsel of God and not to spend time um, constantly going heresy hunting and looking for what the devil's doing everywhere. But there is a role in the life of a Christian minister for picking out false teaching and warning the church against it because it's a very real threat that the New Testament really does focus on many, many times. So why do this? Why why does John mention the false teachers specifically? And why is it right today for us as Christians to use discernment and to be able to identify and pick out false teaching and false teachers? Well, I think it's important because false teaching is dangerous. False teaching is not harmless. It's dangerous. If we read Second uh, Peter, which is a huge, it's a long pericope, a long passage of scripture that means all about false teachers. And in first, sorry, in Second Peter 2, it says this from verse 2, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive opinions. They will even deny the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Even so, many will follow their licentious ways, and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Their condemnation pronounced against them long ago has not been idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So false teaching is dangerous. It's destructive. It has... Uh, it brings destruction not only on those who hear the false teaching and believe it and are led astray by it, but also on the false teacher themselves. So our posture as Christians is to be, number one, aware that false teaching is a reality, that there are people out there peddling a false gospel and actually trying to deceive true Christians. That's the first defense that we ought to have against this stuff. Secondly, we ought to have a heart that says, even though we rebuke and we call out this false teaching and those teaching it, we also have a heart to pray for these individuals that they might see the light and they might change because that's possible in the grace of the Lord Jesus. So we have to have a heart that prays for these individuals that's not hateful, that's not looking to uh, smear their characters and 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 uh, bring hatred into the body of Christ for anyone else who might have watched these false teachings or, or enjoyed these false teachings in the past. We have a heart that prays for them. Um, and also, I think it's important that we're able to actually identify false teaching, particularly as shepherds of the flock, as elders, as leaders. It's important that we're able to identify false teaching because then we're able to warn others about it. It has a very real impact. It is a destructive thing um, that has real consequences for eternity. So therefore, uh, we ought to be able to acknowledge that it's, a, it's real, be able to pray for those who are teaching it, but be able to identify them, warn against them, and rebuke and exhort those uh, who are teaching false teaching. So this is hard-hitting stuff. But it's important because a, a false gospel can't save anyone, can it? In fact, in Galatians 3, uh, Paul himself, uh, he warns against uh, different gospels coming into the body of Christ there in Galatia. He said, I'm astonished 
that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there is there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That word there in the Greek is anathema, anathema, which literally means let them be anathema, let them be cut off from God, let them be cut off from the grace of God. This is a very, very serious pronouncement by Paul for those who distort the gospel. So what is a false teacher? A false teacher and false, well, yes, false teachers are people who teach a different gospel. They're people who distort the true gospel of Christ. And many of these false teachers will actually call themselves Christians. They will be Christian ministers, at least in name. And I think this is one of the things that I think is so it, it, it is so malevolent in the whole thing of false teaching, is that for many Christians... When we look for false teachers, maybe we're looking for somebody running around with horns and a red trident in their hand and maybe a lycra suit. Um, but that's not how they look. You know, the, the devil disguises himself as a minister of light, doesn't he? And so very often false teachers are so-called Christian ministers and they look the part. They look good when they're doing it. They are very well turned out. Very often false teachers can be eloquent, they can be well spoken, um, they can really look the part, uh, they can have huge influence. Uh, false teachers, um, by their very name, they go after influence. And so quite often uh, false teachers will have large followings. And this is one of the worst things about the deception is that nowadays um, when you are looking at somebody who's a false teacher and you're speaking to a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ about this false teacher and you say, I don't think this person's teaching is concurrent with the scriptures. I don't think this person's a biblical teacher. Well, they might say, well, well look at the fruit. Look at the fruit, brother. And you'll say, well, what do you mean by the fruit? Well, look how many people they've got sat in the church every Sunday. You know, look how many followers they've got on Instagram, you know. And that's what they might think by fruit, as Jesus, of course, told us that we would know these false prophets by their fruit. But let me be very clear. The fruit which Jesus was speaking of was not bums on seats. It wasn't Instagram followers. It wasn't influence. It wasn't money. It wasn't cars. It wasn't any of those things. It's the fruit of the spirit that he's looking at. It's the heart and it's the, the outflow of the heart um, from that person that will spill out into generosity, into love, into kindness, into patience, all of those things. So the proof that somebody isn't a false teacher isn't how many people they attract. You see, false teachers are very often popular individuals. And they're also, as I say, well-liked. They can be influential and be very rich. Uh, these are things uh, that... Uh, that don't disqualify somebody from being a false teacher. False teachers are people who persist in teaching a different gospel. They persist in teaching and twisting the scriptures. And this isn't somebody who kind of messes up a preach one Sunday and sort of accidentally preaches heresy. I'm pretty sure 
I've done that multiple times, if you know me. Um, I, I've misspoken and, you know, sometimes I've just not, you know, in my past I've said things that now I wouldn't say, you know. But people have pointed it out and said, gee, I need to sit with you. I didn't really understand where you were going with that. And I've gone, yeah, I, you know, I, I said that wrong or, oh, right, yeah, I, I clearly didn't understand that very well. And so... A false teacher isn't somebody that accidentally kind of misspeaks or teaches the wrong thing every now and again. A false teacher is somebody who consistently, consistently and repeatedly uh, teaches false doctrine. False doctrine. And has been addressed and has been contacted and um, been spoken to by other brothers and sisters in Christ but, but doesn't want to know. And this is very often the case uh, right now in the 21st century. Uh, there are many, sadly, who are not ready to hear uh, feedback on their teaching, which is super important. They're not ready to hear feedback. They're not ready to hear the concerns of well-meaning believers. Instead, they will see any criticism of their teaching as, as just, it's just a projection of, of those people's brokenness. You know, it's just it's just these people showing that they have a critical spirit, uh, maybe that they have a religious spirit. They're just not a person of faith. And so therefore, the concern is dismissed without ever being heard. Now, those are the true signs of a false teacher is somebody who is not accountable to anybody who doesn't want to listen to other brothers and sisters uh, who might want to point out uh, errors in the teaching. False teaching is dangerous and it's around. And here's the other thing to mention, and this is why it's so practical, is that nobody is immune from being deceived. I talked about this a few weeks ago, and I mentioned a guy called uh, Augustine. Augustine was one of the brightest individuals in all of church history, is uh, a phenomenal individual, uh, well studied and lectured and taught in Rome, in Milan, uh, had a classical education and uh, went on to be an incredible Christian writer. Uh, he went on to form the basis of much of the theology of the Reformation. He was an influence on Martin Luther, on John Calvin, on the Puritans. Incredible man. But Augustine himself, before he fully came to Christ, was deceived by a false teaching called Manichaeism. Manichaeism, which was a teaching uh, spread about by a man called Mani. And this guy taught all sorts of strange and weird doctrines. Uh, one of the things that Manichaeists uh, believed was that they needed to feed, literally physically feed, a bunch of people called the elect certain foods. And in so doing, kind of cool spiritual stuff was going to happen. Now that's crazy, isn't it? You would not believe that here in the 21st century, but Augustine did. You know, nobody's immune um, from the influence of false teaching. So how do, we, how do we protect against it then? How do we protect against false teaching? I just want to, before I uh, finish up that section, I, I want to read a couple of quotes that I've just missed and I've seen here, and then we'll, we'll dive into how we're supposed to be protected from this false teaching, because there is an assurance of our protection, which John mentions here. But check this out. This is um, a, a guy called John Calvin, who in his commentaries on this very verse, uh, he wrote this. The pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. 
The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. For he who is deeply skilled in it will be able to both govern those who are teachable and refute the enemies of truth. He he goes on and says this, We ought to always bear in mind that it's the duty of a good and diligent pastor not only to gather a flock, but also to drive away wolves. For what will it avail to proclaim the pure gospel if we connive at the impostures of Satan? No one then can faithfully teach the church except he who is diligent in banishing errors wherever he finds them. You see, it's not loving to prevaricate and delay on the subject of calling out obvious false teaching. It isn't loving to just kind of ignore it, pretend it's not happening, which is so sad because I see that happening all the time in the charismatic church. It's the taboo subject. We don't talk about false teachers here. You know, that's mean and unloving and uncharitable. But actually, the most unloving thing is to ignore it and pretend it's not happening. (laughs) That is unloving, that's hateful, and it's wrong. And it's wrong because we're risking people's ultimate destiny of being with Jesus Christ. If somebody falls into false teaching and ends up believing that and accepting a false Jesus, the Jesus who doesn't exist, it's not going to do them any good on the great day of judgment. J.C. Ryle, who was a Church of England minister in the 19th century, said this, Inability to distinguish differences in doctrine is spreading far and wide. And so long as the preacher is clever and earnest, hundreds seem to think it must be all right and call you dreadfully narrow and uncharitable if you hint that he is unsound. How familiar does that sound? So what assurance do we have that we have any kind of defence against false teaching? Well, here in verse 27, if you want to turn back to the scripture with me, The NASB, I think, has this the best. It says this, And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him remains in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as as the anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as it's taught you, remain in him. (coughs) So there is a a defence against false teaching for the believer, and that's the Holy Spirit. We talked about that a few weeks ago, the anointing which is on your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, um, if you have the new birth in you, you trust in Jesus for your salvation, and uh, you're on a journey of sanctification. If If you're a Christian, you've got something called the anointing on your life. And that anointing is actually able to teach you the difference between the truth and a lie. It works internally. He goes so far as to say, you've got no need for anyone to teach you. Well, that might sound at first glance like my job just became redundant because if you have an anointing that teaches you and you've no need for a teacher, then surely you don't need little Pastor G to teach you anything else, do you? But there's a few things I think are worth pointing out about what John's saying here. The first is we've got to look at the context. Am I speaking too fast again, babe? Ah, I'm coughing, yes, thank you. Last week I was speaking too fast, but this week... It's a, it's a glass of water for my poor throat. Oh, it's not water. It's something fizzy and sweet. That's wonderful. <laughs> anyway, so you might think at first glance, this basically invalidates Pastor G's job. If you've got the anointing, which teaches you all things, where's the need now for teaching? Well, the first thing to say about this scripture is we have to understand 
the context. Whenever we're reading our Bibles, it's like reading a book, isn't it? Um, if we're reading a book and we just jump in right to the middle of a novel and we pick out a sentence and we read it, we're going to understand the words on the page, but we're not going to understand where they fit in the whole story. So we're not going to be able to make much sense of that particular sentence, are we? It's the same with the Bible. So many Christians open the Bible up to a random page, pick out a verse, and that's all they read. And so therefore you can see the problems is that we've, we don't understand the five verses above that verse or the five verses that um, come after it. We might not be able to really understand what it's saying. So who are the people that he's talking about? He's talking about these group of false teachers who are trying to teach the true believers. They're saying, listen, we know things that you don't. We have fresh revelation that you don't have and therefore... You need to be taught by us. And John is saying, you've got an anointing on your life. You don't need these people to come and bring their strange teachings to you. So number one is he's referencing the false teachers. And he's saying to these believers, you don't need these people who say they've got fresh revelation to teach you. Because you have the Holy Spirit on the inside. And he's the one that's doing the teaching. Number two is that in the fact that John is actually writing to them. What's he doing while he's writing to them? He's teaching them. He's teaching them. He's talking to them. So there must still be a role for human teachers. Okay, I don't need to build up too much of an argument for myself here because I don't think I need to. Um, But in Ephesians chapter four, uh, Paul talks about the gifts that have been given by Christ. There's the apostles, the prophets, pastors, teachers and evangelists. And these shall endure until we're perfected in Christ Jesus. So the gift of teaching is not going to go anywhere. But here's the rub. The Holy Spirit is what witnesses the truth of a teaching in your heart. If that makes sense, I'm not sure. But there's something that happens on the inside of you when you as a believer are exposed to the Word of God. When you read your Bible, it's actually the anointing. It's the Holy Spirit that makes those words true to you. Does that make sense? So there's a there's the Holy Spirit active within you every time you open up your Bible, every time you're listening to, to, to a preacher talk about Scripture. The Holy Spirit's actually busy inside of you right now applying those truths and witnessing the truth of them into your life. Um, if it weren't for the anointing, we wouldn't know the truth. You see, Romans 1 says, doesn't it, that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So we don't want to know it. It's It's only when... God gives us his Holy Spirit that we're actually, we have the veil taken off our eyes and we're able to really see truth and believe truth. So the Holy Spirit is what applies the truth of scripture to your life. And also the Holy Spirit, this anointing inside of you, it's a spirit of discernment. It's a spirit of discernment. Now, I know that, you know, discernment ministries and things like that, have been very popular in the past, haven't they? If you're around church in the the 80s and the 90s, a lot of discernment ministries going on. But um, nowadays, they're they're not very well known of. But the anointing inside of you is an anointing that is able to pick apart truth from lie. Truth from lie. So have you ever watched a teacher or listened to a preach before and just kind of thought, I don't know what it is, but there's something just a little bit off about that. There's something that doesn't quite quite fit together. Maybe you don't know uh, why it doesn't fit together. Perhaps you couldn't put your finger on the false doctrine itself, 
but there's something inside of you that says that's not right. That is the activity of the anointing. That's the discerning of the spirit inside of you being active. It's saying there's something not right here because the Holy Spirit is true and is not a lie. So there is a discerning spirit within each of you. It acts like a compass, you know, and it guides you away from false teaching, which I just think is awesome. Praise God for that. I wouldn't want to be left alone to my own devices in the face of false teaching. And why is it that we're told to remain in Christ? What does that mean? You know that word abide? If you've got in your Bible abide, maybe you've got remain in him. Um, it, it appears in, in the scriptures quite a lot in John 15. You know, abide in me as I abide in you. This literally means remain in, hold to, you know. So the Holy Spirit, the anointing is saying to you every day, remain in Christ. Remain in Christ. What does it mean to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ? It means a few things, right? First off, it means to hold true to what the Bible says about Jesus, to love the gospel. And I, I think this is, people will just kind of hear that and think, oh, that's very blithe, you know, it's boring. You know, we know the gospel. Yeah, Jesus died for our sins, yada, yada, yada. Do you know what? I think the weakness of the church in the West today is in large part down to the fact that we've forgotten what the true gospel is or we don't care what the true gospel is. And therein lies our weakness. Therein lies our weakness. You see, if we would remain in Christ, that would mean loving the scriptures, not going off looking for new revelations, not going to every conference we can possibly get to just so we can get a new prophetic word to put in our little books, right? We as a church need to learn to love the word of Christ, which was delivered to us by the Holy Scriptures. Remain in them every day. Love them. So I think that's the first thing we can say about what it means to remain in Christ is do we love his teaching? You know, if you love my teaching, you abide in me. The second thing is, I think, explored in the next few verses. Verse 28 says, now little children remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not draw back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Second thing here that shows that we abide in Christ is that we practice righteousness. You see, Jesus is righteous. We all know that, don't we? He's perfect. He's holy in every way. And we show that we abide in him if we practice righteousness. Now, listen to this, because if you're a real Christian, you'll be hearing that and you'll be feeling condemned. You'll probably be feeling a little bit con convicted, maybe even condemned, because you'll be thinking, oh, you know, I don't always practice righteousness. You know, I'm messed up. And and you think immediately of all the worst things that you've done and how you've failed to, to meet the mark um, every day in, in being righteous. But here's the deal. What does it say? It says everyone who practices righteousness. Now, when I was a kid, I learned to play the violin. I had to practice and practice and practice to get to a place where my mum and dad and sisters could sit in a room with me and hear me play. Because before that, it sounded like a strangled cat. And so practicing something doesn't mean you're perfect at it, does it? Practicing something means you go back again and again and again until you get it right. So practicing righteousness looks like growing in love, growing in character, growing in patience, growing in gift giving growing in charity, 
growing in patience, all these things, they're things that you practice every day. You're looking to get your PB, you know, you're looking to get your new personal best every day and grow in these things. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means there's something in your life. There's a trajectory uh, towards works of righteousness that I could identify. You know, it's easy to spot somebody who's a Christian, not necessarily because they're perfect, but because they hate their sin. They don't like the person that they were once. They don't like the person they were yesterday and they're looking to Jesus to try and get better. That's the sign of a Christian. It's not somebody who's morally perfect. It's somebody who is on a dogged journey towards imitating Jesus Christ. The final thing to say in this preach, in this passage, is this. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And we're talking about a literal appearing. A physical, bodied appearance and every eye will see him. Now, right now, this first Sunday of Advent, we're looking forward to remembering the first Advent when Jesus came into the world as a baby and he was surrounded by animals and shepherds. But by and large part, the world didn't know he was even there. They didn't know he was there. Um, Whereas this second Advent... Here mentioned in verse 28 that when he appears, right, this second advent we know is coming. The Bible says it's going to be a literal, physical appearing of Jesus Christ in glory and in power. And that every eye is going to see him. And that at this point, when he does reappear, both the dead and the living are going to be raised to stand before him. He's not coming back as a baby. He's not coming back meek and mild. He's coming back as the king and as the judge. And I would say this is that John is encouraging us here as Christians to look forward to that day and pin our hopes on the second advent. Pin our hopes on the second advent. You know, right now, it's a challenge to feel hopeful, isn't it? When you look outside and there are so many things that we took for granted back in November 2019 that we don't have now in December 2020. You know, we're having to walk through a pandemic. Uh, We're having to walk through um, things that we have not seen in 75, 80 years in this country. And it can be difficult to hold on to hope. And very often we can try and fix our hopes on, well, you know, if the government would just bring out some new guidelines that would give us some greater freedoms, I'll pin my hopes on that. You know, if, if we could just get through winter, I'll pin my hopes on that. But John is saying, Christian, put your hopes in the second advent. Put your hope in the fact that Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, is coming back. He's coming back soon. We're in the last hour right now. If we were in the last hour in 80 AD when this letter was written, we're in the very last hour right now. We're in the last part of the last hour today and Jesus is coming back and every eye will see him and so I want to say this is that if we keep that in our minds Jesus is coming back he's coming back and for us as Christians this is a great thing he's going to set everything to rights I always think of the story of the chronicles of Narnia you know the the line the witch in the wardrobe when the children go to the beaver's hut and the beavers get excited and they say he's coming back He's coming back and they're so excited. And that, I think, just C.S. Lewis just captures the heart of what it should be like for us as Christians. Jesus is coming back. He's going to set everything to rights. He's going to make every wrong right. And there'll be nobody 
that is able to hide from it that is coming. So let's get ready. Let's focus our eyes on that day, the great and the terrible day of the Lord. And let's make ourselves, let's put ourselves in a position to be confident, to have confidence in that day and not to shrink back. You know, there are, there are people on that great and terrible day. There are non-believers. There are people who've hated Jesus and hated the gospel. For them, it will be a day of terror. It will be a day of terror and they will run and try and hide. But here's the deal. When Jesus comes back, even the world, the sky, the heavens, the stars, the planets, the Bible says even they will shrink back and hide from him on that day. So people have no hope. Gospel haters, Jesus haters have no hope in that day. So I think if you're hearing this today and you don't know Jesus, now's a great time to get to know him. The second thing is, is that Christians, there will be Christians on that day who are confident, who are able to stand and be expectant and have a level of boldness in them to meet their Lord and Saviour. And that's what John wants us to be. And there will be Christians, people who will be saved at the last, who Jesus will welcome into his kingdom, but who feel slightly ashamed at his coming because they know they haven't been running the race well. And John is saying, don't be in that category. Come on, finish the race well. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the righteous one. Keep practicing righteousness every day. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. So you had a bad day yesterday. Get back up and practice righteousness again. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Look forward to his coming. And let's be in a place where we don't shrink back in fear where we have confidence, where we have an excitement to meet our Lord and Saviour on his coming. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word gives us such hope, such hope to know that you haven't left us here to our own devices. And in the midst of this pandemic, where there's so much fear and panic, we're not alone. We're not alone. This is all part of your great, glorious, sovereign plan for this world. And so, Lord, we look forward to the second advent. We look forward to seeing our Lord coming in glory on the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. And we know at that time that we will be with you. We'll be taken up to be with you and we will live with you forever. So, Lord, keep our eyes focused on that blessed hope. And I pray this week you'd give us strength and renewed energy to fight the good fight of faith, that you'd give us more strength to be able to practice righteousness and to grow in the fruit of the spirit in Jesus's name amen amen thank you Dean and Ruth I'll hand back to you